Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Breyer is the longest-serving justice on the court, and one of just three justices appointed by Democrat. The 83-year-old Breyer has so far declined to retire. His argument is that strategically retiring during a Democratic presidency would politicize the court. Your hosts argue that that horse is all the way out of the barn, if it was ever in there in the first place. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have rotted America's soul like candy to a child's teeth. Mm. I am Peter, <laughs> mm. and I'm here with Rhiannon. Hi. And Michael. Hey, everybody. And today we are covering uh, a bit of a hot topic. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Wow, so spicy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stephen Breyer is, uh, of course, one of the three remaining liberal justices on the court, and he is by a wide margin the oldest. In fact, just a few days ago, he turned 83 years young. Happy birthday, Stephen Breyer. Yeah, he's also the, um, did you guys know this? He's also the Supreme Court justice who looks most like a jar of mayonnaise. Hmm. Now that you say it. It does sound right. It does sound right. And, you know, of course, Breyer has attracted controversy lately with what appears to be a decision, at least for now, not to retire. Uh, At a time where Ruth Bader Ginsburg's failure to retire under a Democratic president has officially cost us a seat on the court, his decision has come under some pretty well-deserved scrutiny. (laughs) So we are going to walk you through Stephen Breyer's life and see whether we can glean from it what might have caused his brain to malfunction so thoroughly, (laughs) leaving him without any notable ideology and completely unable to process the politics of the modern world. (laughs) Yeah, his brain just goes zero one zero one one one. The Supreme (laughs) Court is good. Robot servant to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and on that note, obviously we'll wrap this episode up with me doing an impression of Stephen Breyer as the Blade Runner android (laughs) giving the tears and rain speech. Excellent. And we can call it a day. (laughs) Blade Runner is a movie about Stephen Breyer, really. (laughs) Well, the difference between him and the robots and Blade Runner is that we don't really know whether they have a soul, whereas we know that Stephen Breyer does not have a soul. The moral dilemma is completely absent. The central question posed by Blade Runner, uh, what is it to be a human, is something that you could easily see asking yourself after a long conversation with Stephen Breyer. Yeah, title of his memoir. (laughs) (laughs) Sari, I think first we're starting off with uh, a young Stephen Breyer. Yeah. What was that guy like? Was he ever young? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. He's just like a perpetual old vanilla white guy. This biography is going to bore you to tears. But here we go. You know, the story of Breyer's ascent to the Supreme Court is a really classic story of the career trajectory to the Supreme Court for this generation of judges. Right. So you started off in the Supreme Court's mailroom, impressed the right people. (laughs) (laughs) Worked his way right up. It's like Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Just like Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness, Stephen Breyer attended Stanford for undergrad. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford after graduating from Stanford. And then after his time at Oxford,
Harvard. He comes back stateside and he goes to law school where? Harvard. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. After he graduates with, you know, excellent grades and a resume that shows he was on the Harvard Law Review, he clerked for Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg and then spent a couple of years as special assistant to the assistant attorney general in the Department of Justice's antitrust division. (laughs) Assistant to the assistant attorney general. That's uh, (laughs) that's right. It's a Dwight Schrute title in the office. (laughs) Yeah. And um, after that, he becomes a Harvard Law professor in 1967. His teaching jobs really focused on administrative law. Again, famously, like, extremely spicy, edge of your seat, (laughs) real, real titillating stuff, admin law. And so Stephen Breyer teaches at Harvard until 1980, when President Carter nominated him to be a judge on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. That circuit sits in Boston, Massachusetts. And Breyer was there for 14 years, was also the chief judge of the First Circuit, until he is nominated by President Bill Clinton to the Supreme Court once Harry Blackman decides to retire. This guy is so fucking old that he's been on the bench as a judge in one form or another longer than any of us have been alive. (laughs) That's right. An entire lifetime as as a judge. Right. He's either been in legal academia or he's been a judge, not just longer than I've been alive, longer than my mom (laughs) has been alive. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, talking about numbers and years of service, let's pause here to talk a little bit about that storyline that we just covered. So if my calculations are correct, they always are. Don't worry. (laughs) It appears that Justice Breyer only spent a couple of years as an actual practicing attorney. And even then, we're talking about his time as special assistant 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 to the assistant attorney right. general or uh, special assistant to the assistant attorney mm-hmm. general <laughs> for antitrust at DOJ important work for sure but like the vast majority of his career before being nominated to a federal court and then to the supreme court is in legal academia mm-hmm. right he clerked and then he taught And so even his clerkship, I think, for Justice Goldberg, right when Breyer graduated from law school, even that clerkship, I think, tells us something about his approach as a Supreme Court justice, because it's emblematic of of a different time, really, in Supreme Court history, this time in which he's coming up as a new lawyer and a new practitioner. Just to talk a little bit about the guy he clerked for, Arthur Goldberg went from U.S. Labor Secretary to Associate Justice on the Supreme Court of the United States, to United Nations Ambassador in the span of five years, right? There's just this kind of, (laughs) there's a kind of vibe and expectation at the time that you as a smart lawyer who has ascended the ranks of government and academia, that you kind of fit the bill for a lot of different roles, right? And that you can move around in public service and in government service in this way that, you know, doesn't require years of experience in a sort of specialized role. Yeah, right. It does suggest, though, that maybe Joe Biden should offer Breyer an ambassadorship. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, bud. Yeah, yeah. Get him to go somewhere else. Ambassador to uh, Jamaica or (laughs) somewhere nice and sunny? Or is he a mountain guy, maybe? Maybe he wants to go to, like, (laughs) Switzerland? I guess it was a time when, like, 
being a Supreme Court justice was just another way in which Mm -hmm. you would just be a statesman. Right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. You were just a guy who like hopped around in um, public service. Like another diplomat. One high profile role to another. Yeah. There's nothing particularly unique in the minds of someone like Arthur Goldberg about the Supreme Court slot. Yeah. Yeah. Now, contrast that, though that view of sort of statesmanship or your role in government service, contrast that with somebody like Scalia's approach to his Supreme Court seat, right? In Antonin Scalia, you see a devotion, right? A through line throughout his career to a certain way of thinking about the law. There's a purpose and intentionality about his Supreme Court seat that he was sort of explicit and open about. Whereas, you know, you see somebody like Stephen Breyer just, again, ascending a classic career trajectory to a job as an extremely powerful statesman, whatever you want to call it, and there not being a sort of philosophy that that takes him to and through that role. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something about Stephen Breyer had courtside seats to like the ascendance of the right wing mm-hmm. legal movement. Right. Yes. He starts his career in the 60s. Uh, that movement starts about a decade later. And there he was, right, just watching it all happen, watching the Federalist Society form, watching Robert Bork develop a coherent theory of originalism, yes. watching Scalia rise to the court, Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. and learning nothing, right? Like acquiring no knowledge. Yeah. It didn't impact his view of the law, which we'll discuss very shortly, but his sort of like ideology free right. view of the law. It just it did nothing. It, he was completely unimpacted by it. That's right. Just yeah. total dullard shit. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Like how dull do you have to be? He cut his teeth right in antitrust, you said. Yeah. One of the big right wing revolutions in the law led by Bork has been in antitrust, right. which totally reshaped that area of law in a way that has like unchained corporations. Right. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. That doesn't register with him at all as like ideology. Right. Like not noticing bullets whizzing by his head for 50 years. That's right. Yeah. There's nothing to point to in the career that indicates a sort of zeal for a certain way of interpreting the law and for what like law means to society and what it does for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he replaces Harry Blackman, who started off more conservative, but really ends his career as not just a liberal, but one of the more powerful voices from the left side in Supreme Court history. And in my personal opinion, the best writer the Supreme Court has ever seen. An unbelievable downgrade. Just, <laughs> yes. just, I mean, yeah. a massive step down. Right, right. So we should talk about his jurisprudence a bit. You know, for the most part, the bulk of his jurisprudence is pretty unobjectionable from our perspective. You know, he's, he's on the yeah. right side, generally speaking, on a bunch of issues. He's good on abortion rights, always been on the correct side of that. He's been good on gay rights, very good on the death penalty uh, to the point where he's called for a reevaluation of whether it's even constitutional, uh, which is certainly farther than most liberal justices have been willing to go. But of course, there are a couple areas where he is below par for a liberal justice and really sort of sidles up to the right. The first one war on terror shit. So what I'll say is he joined one of the worst national security decisions of the last 20 years, which all like came sort of in the shadow of 9-11, um, the Afghani and Iraqi wars, mass surveillance and all that stuff. Right. And, and we're still sort of living with it. 
But so this was a very early one and a very important one. It's called Hamdi v. Rumsfeld. And I think it's a case that eventually we'll probably do an episode on. So uh, Yasser Hamdi is an American citizen who gets picked up by American troops in Afghanistan. And they say he's Taliban. And so they send him back to the U.S. where he's held at a military base in Virginia for two years without trial, without charges brought against him, just thrown in a hole and throw the keys away. And the question is, is this constitutional, right? His dad brings a, a, you know, a writ of habeas corpus challenge to his detention saying, look, you know, my son's an American citizen. He's got a right to process. You have to try him or or release him. He's not in the Taliban. Mm -hmm. He was an aid worker who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this is ridiculous. Right. This is about as straightforward a case as you can get in this national security context. The Constitution requires very explicitly that the federal government can only detain American citizens if it's pursuant to an act of Congress or if Congress has suspended the writ of habeas corpus. Mm -hmm. That's it. The fact that what happened here is the court said, well, maybe maybe there's a third category is one of the worst concessions on civil liberties in the name of national security in recent memory. And it blows a hole in habeas corpus and makes us all less free. So the traditional paradigm is U.S. citizens on U.S. soil who wage war against the United States are arrested and tried in federal court on treason and similar charges. There's a whole list of criminal violations in the federal code right. that have been used in, in basically all other similar cases. I mentioned the writ of habeas corpus, and the Constitution says, well, Congress can suspend the writ of habeas corpus, right? Right. Even when Lincoln dubiously proclaimed that he could unilaterally suspend the writ during the Civil War, he explicitly did so under the assumption that he couldn't indefinitely detain U.S. citizens unless the writ of habeas corpus was suspended. It's the most solid principle in American law that the government can't just scoop up American citizens and lock them away. Right. Like that's foundational. It is an open and shut case, but not to Sandra Day O'Connor, William Rehnquist, Anthony Kennedy, and Stephen Breyer. And they instead say, well, look, actually, maybe you can do that. Maybe what you get is this pseudo bullshit process. And what they describe are like some bare minimum requirements, like a neutral arbiter that ended up being like the go ahead for the bullshit military commissions that are just a joke. And so I want to read, there was a great dissent from Scalia joined by Justice Stevens. And I think he like kind of hits it on the head. He says, having found a congressional authorization for detention of citizens where none clearly exists and having discarded the categorical procedural protection of the suspension clause, the plurality then proceeds under the guise of the due process clause to prescribe what procedural protections it thinks appropriate. And comes up with an unheard of system in which the citizen, rather than the government, bears the burden of proof. Yeah. Testimony is by hearsay rather than live witnesses. Right. And the presiding officer may well be a quote unquote neutral military officer rather than judge and jury. This is what they decided. So I think this is important not because it was shit on the merits. 
But for what Breyer claims about the institution of the court and the importance of the rule of law and all this shit we're going to talk about, because more than anything, this is a decision of political cowardice, Right. right? There were two justices with the balls to say, look, you know, uh, shit's crazy. Yeah, everybody's really upset. Right. The 9-11 was traumatic and we're at war. The country's in turmoil, but this is what the Constitution requires. Right. That is not the tack that Breyer and the others took. It was pure capitulation to what I would say would be assumed public pressure. Right. 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 And a fear of challenging the president during a time of war. It's politics. And it's cowardly politics at that. And, you know, I think worth noting, he joins O'Connor, Rehnquist and Kennedy in a plurality. Right. You know, Ginsburg and Souter don't join that opinion in full. Scalia and Thomas and Stevens all dissent. So Breyer's essential, right? He's essential to right. this equation where he sort of allies with these moderate conservatives. Right. You had Scalia who has this sort of libertarian streak going another way with it. It just goes to show Breyer at times on some of this stuff worse than many of the conservative justices because he doesn't have that libertarian instinct at all. Right. The opposite. He like believes in a big, strong, powerful federal government. And sometimes that means uh, your liberties get trampled, you know, and that's we see that in his crim law stuff as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You see Breyer giving, you know, more power to the police, more power to the government at the expense of individual civil liberties and civil rights. Yeah. And, you know, along those same lines, Uh, During the late 80s, Breyer was a member of the United States Sentencing Commission, where he was instrumental in the development of the federal sentencing guidelines. And those are exactly what they sound like. They're guidelines for sentencing criminal defendants in federal cases. They were intended to result in the more uniform application of sentences for different defendants. (laughs) What they actually did was result in higher average sentences almost across the board, and especially for poor people and minorities in large part by requiring aggressive sentences for crimes that poor people and minorities were more likely to commit. You may have heard that for many years, the disparity in sentencing for crack cocaine compared to regular cocaine was 100 to 1, meaning that if you were caught with a gram of crack cocaine, your sentence would be 100 times worse than someone caught with a gram of regular cocaine. That is a direct result of the requirements of the federal sentencing guidelines. Yeah. They also maintained disproportionately high penalties for undocumented immigrants and were heavily criticized by civil rights advocates for exacerbating sentencing disparities along racial and economic lines, often being too rigid and arbitrary in their application and, you know, just sort of not solving the problem that they were intended to solve. Right. So thanks for that, Stephen Breyer. (laughs) One note really quick, though, about Stephen Breyer's background, which is maybe relevant to his uh, philosophy and approach to criminal law cases or cases having to do with the rights of criminal defendants. I guess Stephen Breyer has been robbed multiple times in his life. So um, the three of us, (laughs) I didn't know this, but the three of us did a Zoom event with some Patreon subscribers last weekend. And somebody put in the chat, that Stephen Breyer had been robbed a couple of times, uh, at least a couple of times in his life. And so I looked it up. This is it's ridiculous because I looked it up. I Googled like Justice Stephen Breyer gets robbed or something. So what pops up on Google, the first headline when I Googled is something like Justice Breyer robbed at machete point during Caribbean vacation. (laughs) 
like <laughs> holy fucking shit and then literally i swear i swear to god on google the second result headline justice briar has been robbed again <laughs> it's just like <laughs> what is this guy doing like what the fuck some people just look like easy targets <laughs> and stephen briar is one of them <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I guess the first one, he and his wife uh, were vacationing in the Caribbean, got $1,000 in cash stolen from them by, yeah, a man who held them at Machete Point in their beachside villa. I mean, <laughs> who's fucking walking around with a thousand dollars at a resort with a thousand dollars yeah the fuck <laughs> yeah and then the second time i guess his georgetown area home in dc was burglarized but it was the same year so anyways maybe that is a reason why he hates the rights of criminal defendants maybe that's a reason why he should not be ambassador to uh, Jamaica or... <laughs> I'm still stuck on $1,000 cash. That's outrageous. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. That is absolutely outrageous. Uh, no wonder this guy is so fucking out of touch. <laughs> okay, so turning to how bad he has been on the Supreme Court in criminal cases... My first example, there's a case called Garner versus Jones. This was a case back in the year 2000 in which Breyer joined the conservatives to hold that prison sentences in some circumstances can be lengthened retroactively. So the person in this case, Mr. Jones, had been sentenced to life in prison in Georgia. And at the time that he was sentenced to life in prison, it was mandatory for the parole board to consider your eligibility for release on parole after you served the first three years of your sentence. Now, later on, after Mr. Jones had already gone to prison under that rule, the rule changed so that the parole board only had to review your sentence and decide if you were eligible for parole release after you have served the first eight years of your sentence. Now, as I said, Breyer joined conservatives here in this case to say that the parole board was completely fine in applying that rule retroactively to Mr. Jones's case so that even though when he was sentenced, he believed he would be eligible for parole and that his case would be reviewed in three years, that changed to eight years, making his sentence effectively longer, right? The conservatives and Stephen Breyer say that that's completely fine. A second case, Illinois versus Lidster. This is 2004, a few years later. Breyer not only, again, joins the conservatives in this case, but writes the opinion screwing over criminal defendants. This case, Lidster, is about highway checkpoints that are set up by law enforcement. The general rule under the Fourth Amendment is that these kinds of law enforcement checkpoints that are that are set up to stop drivers and to just generally search for possible illegal activity, that that kind of checkpoint is unconstitutional, right? The Fourth Amendment says you got to have a warrant for stops and searches. You got to have some suspicion of specific criminal activity to stop people and ask them questions or to look inside their cars, right? But in this case, in Illinois versus Lidster, the highway checkpoints had been set up by police to investigate a prior drunk driving accident. 
So police are stopping cars in their checkpoint to get more information about a prior crime. But through their stop and search of Robert Lidster, they find evidence of an unrelated crime for which he is arrested and imprisoned. So this case, again, not just Breyer joining the conservatives for a majority opinion, but actually authored by Breyer. This case stands for the proposition that that's just fine under the Fourth Amendment, because technically the purpose of the police checkpoint was to investigate something else. Right. It's a nonsensical opinion. It really weakens drivers Fourth Amendment protections because it tells police that if you set up a checkpoint to investigate something specific and then in questioning people who come through your checkpoint, find evidence of another crime. Right. That that's totally fine. Right. Yeah. Just a nice little Fourth Amendment loophole for you. Right. Courtesy of Stephen Breyer. Right. That's right. It gives them that perfect little Fourth Amendment loophole where they don't need a warrant. They don't need to articulate what their prior suspicion was before stopping and searching people. Another case, this one is huge, huge, huge. We will definitely have an episode about Maryland versus King one day. But this is a 2013 case in which, again, Stephen Breyer, liberal justice nominated by Bill Clinton, right, a year after Ruth Bader Ginsburg takes the court, joins conservatives to give them the fifth vote for a majority. This case allows police to take DNA samples from criminal suspects without a warrant. This was a landmark decision about police power and the law of criminal procedure. And Stephen Breyer is here joining Kennedy, Roberts, Thomas and Alito to say that police can take your DNA just like they take your fingerprints. No extra burden, no hoop to jump through. They don't have to have a warrant if they don't want to get it. They can just routinely take, you know, your individual genetic identity marker without a warrant. And, you know, I just I wanted to point out. This is another case where Scalia wrote the dissent mm-hmm. and, again, his sort of civil libertarian streak coming out. And right. that means that the liberal position would have won if not for Breyer jumping ship. Yeah. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like I said, it's a massive case. This case really opened the floodgates for police to be taking DNA from anybody that they pick up, right, and not have to have a warrant for it, not have to explain to a judge why it's necessary to get that information out of it. So those are, you know, probably the two biggest holes in his jurisprudential creds. But what's his philosophy, right? When you ask people what Stephen Breyer's judicial philosophy is, I think most people would say, well, he's a pragmatist, right? He loves to work through ostensibly reasonable outcome. He loves balancing tests that weigh the interests on each side of an issue, Mm -hmm. shit like that. So I want to talk a bit about the limitations of pragmatism, because on a surface level, I think you could look at Breyer's philosophy and think that it's similar to ours, right? He believes that the interpretation of the law should be driven at least in large part by practical realities, which I think in a general sense, we do too. Right. But this is a good example of why pragmatism in and of itself is inadequate. John Roberts is in many ways a pragmatist, right? So what someone views as pragmatic or reasonable in a given case, in a given situation, is informed by their own values and their own perspective. If you are politically conservative or just a centrist like Breyer, your sense of what a practical outcome or solution is will be informed by that ideology. So Breyer's pragmatism will alternately seem very sensible or very out of touch depending on the issue. He's a very firm believer in active democratic participation. So 
in voting rights cases, you, our, you know, presumably left-leaning listener, might think that his pragmatism makes some sense. But we just covered his conservative streak on criminal justice issues where you might feel like his pragmatism seems very detached from the experiences of many accused people and not, you know, not to mention communities with higher rates of poverty and crime. The point being, pragmatism is not an ideology. It's not in and of itself a method of legal analysis or interpretation. When someone tries to portray Breyer as a pragmatist, first and foremost, they're not conveying a lot of useful information. Right. What Breyer actually is, ideologically and as a Supreme Court justice, is a milquetoast liberal. Right. Right. Yep. Pragmatism is his aesthetic. Right? It's like the vessel through which his sort of dull brand of liberalism flows. Right. But it's not his philosophy. It's not anyone's philosophy. Right. Yeah. Pragmatism is just one way of reaching an end. Right. But what matters is your goals. Right. John Roberts, like you said, is a pragmatist. His goals are noxious right. and evil. Right. And as such, his pragmatism in the service of those goals is very distressing. <laughs> Breyer, he he barely has any goals. <laughs> he is such yeah. a fucking dullard right. that it's not even clear he has like an idea of what he wants the court to do other than to be the court. Yeah. Yeah. So we should sort of explore what I think is like the closest thing to a philosophy that he has. Right. Uh, he wrote a book 15 years ago or so called Active Liberty. Yeah. And the thesis of the book is that constitutional interpretation should be driven by the idea of democratic participation in government. And I, I just mentioned that he's pretty good on voting rights cases, uh, I think in large part because he's driven by this philosophy. Mm -hmm. What I think is notable about this book is that it failed to drive any notable discourse <laughs> at all, despite being, you know, ostensibly sort of a response to originalism and, and the rise of originalism. You can contrast that with Scalia being able to write books about textualism and manifest the anger of his audience and really drive the conversation forward. Absolutely. Breyer sort of has these positions, but he he didn't really do anything to alter the nature of the conversation uh, academically. Yeah. You know, I, I read this book when it when it came out and that was before I'd even gone to law school. But it was like, wow, the most recent liberal Supreme Court justice wrote a book. The title is kind of catchy, Active Liberty. I was like, that I'm interested, yeah. right? Uh -huh. And it left, <laughs> it left like such a fucking little footprint on my brain that like it played no role in my decision to go to law school. I mean, I forgot about it immediately and was well into prep for this when I was like, oh yeah. He wrote a book. We should we should talk about this. <laughs> like it just like left my mind the second I was done reading it. Like nothing. Like it's just yeah. not interesting at, at all. <laughs> Unbelievable right. how fucking boring this. Yeah. Dude is. Yeah. There's no like lasting takeaways no. from yeah. from how this guy thinks about the law. Yeah. I, I think, Michael, you were the one that said it's it's not that he has like a really strong perspective as much as he just sort of finds this stuff fascinating from like an intellectual point of view. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. If he does have a passion, it, it doesn't come through in his writing at all. He finds this stuff intellectually engaging. He enjoys the back and forth and, and he enjoys thinking about issues and getting into them and trying to find a good solution to problems. That's a bullshit approach to being a judge or yeah. a justice. Like it's an absolute garbage approach. Right. Yeah. And that, that sort of combination of intellectual engagement, but lacking any real point of view, right. it comes through on the bench, I think, too, where he's. 
he's consistently very talkative in oral argument, mm-hmm. but I mean, he just never says something interesting. He's an unbelievable bore. Yeah, right. absolutely. Doesn't he infamously like poses like very complicated hypotheticals? Yeah, like, multiple parts. That's like, right. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Yeah. He sort of values, you know, finding a legal solution to a legal question, <laughs> a legal problem, but that's completely abstract to him. He is not thinking about like finding a solution to a legal problem that, for instance, helps people. Right. Right. Or progresses democracy and democratic values. Right. Mm -hmm. I guess he's just doing it for the love of the game. But I do think there's a level of just like head in the clouds. Right. Like this sort of like that's sort of what ties together like a guy who thinks about this stuff in such a detached, like abstract way. And also is not retiring at 83 after seeing what happened with Ginsburg and also is carrying $1,000 with him on vacation. (laughs) Right, right. right. (laughs) Hypothetical. You have uh, $1,000 in your pocket and someone's holding a machete to your throat. You can give him $500. (laughs) And he would absolutely believe that that is every dollar you have. (laughs) Or you can give him the whole thousand like a coward. But this is just a guy who's like floating through life, like, you know, totally untouched by its realities, you know, except for being robbed several times, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) No, I yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's almost like the mathematician's approach, right? It's somebody who and there are tons of people like this in law school. All of us have met them who say like, oh, I came to law school because my parents are both lawyers. Um, One of them's a judge, actually. And, you know, I just really like puzzles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's the person who says, I just like to find answers to like tricky puzzles. That's a Briar type, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, okay, talking about how fucking boring he is, we do need to talk about one instance, maybe the closest that Stephen Breyer has come to controversy. <laughs> and that is <laughs> the fact that there is solid evidence, no pun intended on solid. <laughs> That Stephen Breyer <laughs> took a shit on a live streamed oral argument during COVID. We're not we're not talking metaphorical like he took a shit on that argument. No, no. Right? Like that dude went to the bathroom and dropped a deuce. Number two. He, right. <laughs> no, he right. pooped. Pooped yes. and flushed while he unmuted on Zoom. <laughs> Just incredible. So I am I am honored to be the person that brings this to listeners. If you have not heard this story. Yes. The time is is May 2020. Listener, if you can take yourself back just over a year ago, this is just a couple of months after covid lockdown had started. The Supreme Court has announced that they will be continuing with oral arguments for their term, but they'll be continuing over the phone, right, virtually, telephonically, and that the virtual arguments will be live streamed. Like, whoa, pulling the curtain back, letting the public really see how the sausage is made here. (laughs) So it is the third ever (laughs) telephonically live-streamed oral argument in United States history. The case is Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants. And about an hour into the oral argument, everyone tuned in. Here's the unmistakable sound of a toilet flushing. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed. And it's-, it's already a major faux pas, right? But 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 we don't really know who it is because there are nine Supreme Court justices on this call. 
plus attorneys for both sides who are arguing in front of the justices right now. Safe bet that it wasn't the attorneys because they're nervous. You know, this is this is the event of the year for them. They're not like, I'm going to go. I'm going to run to the bathroom. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So so enter the Sherlock Holmes of our time, Ashley Feinberg. Mm. Yes. Ashley Feinberg over at Slate has a roller coaster rundown of the minute by minute investigation she did, (laughs) which, in my opinion, strongly and reliably concludes that the flush had to have belonged to Stephen Breyer Mm -hmm. himself. Now, she's yeah. isolated background sounds in the oral arguments. She's taken into consideration who would have been muted or unmuted at what times. She systematically rules out every single participant on that call until there is no other conclusion to be drawn. OK, and not only was Stephen Breyer the toilet using culprit, <laughs> but Ashley Feinberg has compelling evidence mm-hmm. that Breyer took a shit yes this was not (laughs) this is not just number one not just number number one one, okay if it was we might not even cover it you know (laughs) (laughs) not newsworthy i highly recommend that everybody reads this article by ashley feinberg in slate it's so good it's compelling it's absolutely compelling and the level of investigative reporting here i mean this would move bob woodward to tears yeah okay (laughs) so (laughs) that's right that's right there's not much more to be said about it I just think it's phenomenal. You're on day three (laughs) of live streaming oral arguments. And he's like, I'm going to do it. Right. (laughs) Got to go. It's incredible. The audacity. Yes. It's not just about like the technological incompetence. It's the audacity to be like in the middle of oral arguments, you're a Supreme Court justice. You are full on at work. (laughs) And you're like, I'm going to take a shit. I'm not going to wait until this argument is over, which, by the way, would have been like 20 minutes. Right. (laughs) It's not like they're that long. I'm going to do it right now. I'm fully at work with the American public listening Mm -hmm. online with me. I got to (laughs) go. Incredible. (laughs) So that's it for our coverage of Stephen Breyer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hope you enjoyed the episode. (laughs) I mean, I, I think we should move on to what you might call the matter at hand. Stephen Breyer is 83 years old. Joe Biden is, to the extent that he is technically conscious, a Democrat. (laughs) The Senate is very, very narrowly in Democratic control. Yeah. If Stephen Breyer does not die or retire before any of that changes, it is very possible that he will not be replaced by a Democrat or that at the very least, Republicans will have some influence over his replacement. Totally. Seeing as Ruth Bader Ginsburg just made this very mistake and ultimately died under a Republican president, many people have started pounding the table, calling for him to retire. And the unfortunate reality appears to be that he is, at least right now, not going to. (laughs) No, no. He seems dead set on staying. He's given interviews where he says basically that he's enjoying his new status as one of the most senior members of the court. Fuck your status, bro. Being senior comes with responsibilities. When you are the most senior member of a majority, you get to assign the decision, which he almost certainly has never done before. Um, And he likely did this term. It's it's not possible to say with 100% certainty, but it seems likely that he assigned opinion to Amy Coney Barrett mm-hmm. this term. You also have more of a leadership role in conference, which is when they get together and discuss the cases and indicate how they intend to vote. 
and hash out like what the position of the court will be and right. all that and what the coalitions are going to be. And so when you're more senior justices have like sort of responsibilities in shepherding those conversations and the building of those coalitions. And he finds that gratifying. Right. He thinks it's cool. He thinks that yeah. it's like yeah. he's the most fun he's ever had as a justice, essentially. He, I don't think he used that phrase, but it definitely comes across, <laughs> you know. Another right. example of him just finding the stuff sort of like fascinating, right, yeah, at an exactly. intellectual level. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, man, this is a whole new chapter in my in my career where I get to be a leader of a three justice minority that loses all the time. (laughs) 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 But, you know, these comments are like very enraging to me for a number of reasons. But the one I want to highlight is just that, like, I think being on the Supreme Court is generally conceived of and should be conceived of as public service. Right. Yeah. And I don't think it's public service that people should be enjoying. And I say that like, I mean that, like, I think you should have trouble sleeping if you're Supreme Court justice about the battles you lost. Yeah. About how many executions you were not able to stay. Right. Right. How many people were put to death? How many people as a result of one of your rulings, uh, maybe you got it wrong and are in jail unjustly or have less access to reproductive health or whatever. Right. Like your cases have massive, massive consequences, whether you got it right, but were in the minority or you were in the majority and you got it wrong. Like there are going to be inevitably instances where you lose one way or another. And I think if you're 80 plus and you've been on the court for over 25 years, this shit should be a relief. Yeah. You should be thankful that you could finally like put your your work to rest and pass it on. Absolutely. It should be like this has been a tough job, a long, tough job, and I need to retire. Yeah, it's it's something we talked about in our RBG episode that power should be a burden, right? And if, if you find yourself sort of like enjoying it, right. that should be disconcerting to anyone observing it. Right. right. But why would Breyer need to retire? Because he is enjoying it, right? For him, this is retirement, right? He's in semi-retirement. Like he, he only works a few months a year, right? Most of the work is done by clerks anyway. Right now, it's all done remotely. He doesn't even have to go into fucking work. He does oral argument on the Take toilet. Take a shit during oral argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course he's like doesn't want to retire. But that is all the more evidence why he was never really even fit to be a justice in the first place, let alone to remain a justice. Right. right. So we should talk about a speech he gave at Harvard Law in April of this year and his upcoming book, which is based on the speech both titled The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. (laughs) I think that that speech currently gives us the sort of best understanding of the intersection of his philosophy and his decision to stay on the court. The speech is ostensibly about court packing and other court reforms, but can be read as applying to any discussion of political maneuvering around the composition of the court, which, of course, applies just as directly to his own retirement. So first of all, I watched nearly his entire speech and oh, my God, man, like I'm I'm not trying to be funny. He is just such a fucking boring dude. Yeah. He starts off with like a pretty detailed dissection of the Constitution itself. 
and then describes the entire history and significance of Marbury v. Madison. He's speaking at Harvard Law. Like, no one he's talking to needs this background. Right. Like, this college sophomore level background. Right. At this point, you're like 15 minutes into the speech, and I was like, all right, he's doing like judicial review for dummies. I'm going to skip ahead. I skip ahead 20 minutes. Yeah. He's in the 1930s still. <laughs> I was just like, God damn it, man. <laughs> and the entire speech is just sort of him working through historical scenarios involving the court and being like, well, so that worked out OK. And then moving on to the next scenario. Right. And the theme of the speech is that historically the court has operated with a combination of public and institutional support. And that support is necessary for it to fulfill its constitutional function. So he's sort of making the case that we need public support for the court and public trust in the court. Yeah. And he says, quote, if the public sees judges as politicians in robes, its confidence in the courts and in the rule of law itself can only diminish, diminishing the court's power. (sighs) So the problem with this point is that he is acting like the perception of the court is somehow separable from the actions of the court. Mm -hmm. The perception that the court is political is being driven by the fact that the court is increasingly political, right? right? People can see the court eroding voting rights and reproductive freedom and LGBT rights with their own eyes. They can see Mitch McConnell stealing a seat and ramming Amy Coney Barrett's nomination through. They can see Justice Kennedy uh, strategically retiring under Trump. You can't address these concerns by just stating that the court is not political, right? Mm -hmm. Our entire podcast is premised on the idea that the court is inherently political. So I don't want to, you know, waste too much air laying out why we believe that's the case. But from time to time, people ask us how they can sort of concisely make this argument. So let me put it this way. It's uncontroversial to say that there are different philosophies about how to interpret the law. Breyer himself would almost certainly agree with this. He wrote a book that was a fairly overt critique of originalism. Yeah. So there's no question, even among the Stephen Breyers of the world, that there is a dispute between conflicting schools of legal interpretation and legal thought. Even if you don't want to call that dispute political, you are still left with the fundamental problem that there are differing schools of thought with respect to how to interpret the law. And one is vastly overrepresented on the Supreme Court right now. Yeah. Now, we believe that those schools of legal thought are themselves outgrowths of political ideology. But even if for whatever reason you don't, even if you say that's not really politics, it's law, it's different, you have to at least concede that there is a tension between these differing legal philosophies. So if you don't want to call it politics, fine, whatever. But there is a power struggle either way and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So he talks about all sorts of like historical examples, but one that jumped out to me He basically talks about how he disagreed with the decision in Bush v. Gore. He thought it was the wrong decision, but he accepted it and the Democrats accepted it and encouraged people to move on. And he claims that that showed that the American public is capable of accepting decisions that they believe are incorrect and moving on and that that should be encouraged. Right. But such a weird aspect of this point that he's trying to make that that he's missing, right, is that it's not inherently good that the American public might be able to accept and move on from incorrect court decisions, right? That's not a sign of the institution working the way it's supposed to work. And that's not a sign of a healthy democracy. 
that the highest and most powerful legal institution in the country turns out incorrect decisions that the public then just has to live with. Right. 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 I think it's telling that he used Bush v. Gore because he couldn't use a, a decision where the impact was more directly negative. He's not going to say, oh, well, Dred Scott, yeah. you know, we all sort of accepted it and moved on. Right. And that was great. Right. Korematsu, we all mm-hmm. accepted it and moved on. Right. That was great. Right. Because those decisions are horrific. That's right. And the direct human suffering resulting from them was enormous. Right. So he can't use those as examples. He has to use one where it's just like, oh, and and the politician you didn't like won. Right. Um, because it's just a little more abstracted. The damage that was done is more abstracted from the decision itself. I think that's exactly right. And I also think that this view that, look, Bush v. Gore or the, the Supreme Court in general can churn out incorrect decisions and everybody is just just okay with it. You know, we said earlier in the episode that Stephen Breyer has lived a life and spent a career in which he has witnessed the consolidation of power in a conservative backlash to the civil rights era, right? And he purposely, especially with this viewpoint, I think, or this expression of this viewpoint, really makes obvious the blinders that he has on, right? It's a complete lack of context for how the Bush v. Gore decision uh, actually came about, right? How that incorrect decision happened. There's no critique on his part on, okay, well, how and why did the Supreme Court fuck up if you think that it's an incorrect decision, right? Yeah, you know, it's this bizarre and like blinkered worldview that says whatever the court does is good, yeah. essentially, regardless of the substance. And, you know, there's like a sort of, you can imagine a process sort of worldview that says, well, as long as the process yeah. is good, you live with the output, right? right? The output of a good process. Right. But even the process on Bush v. Gore wasn't good. Like the original question they accepted cert on had to be scrapped because it was clear that it had no business being at the court and should have been dismissed as improvidently granted immediately. Instead, they completely changed the theory of the case. They consistently meddled in the recount and set up everything for failure so that they could then use that failure as an excuse to cut the recount short. That's right. Right. It was a corrupt process. It was a bad process. So the substance wasn't good and the process wasn't good. And still he says, but it's important that the people yeah. think it was good. It's fucking bizarre. Right. Yeah. The quote Peter picked out, he says, the rule of law can only diminish the court's power. Right. And so- What he's concerned with, first and foremost, is not whether or not the court is functioning properly. Right. Protecting democracy. And whether or not it is doing good. It's whether or not the court has power. He just takes it as self-evidently true that the Supreme Court being powerful is important and so necessary part of our society's functioning, that even if it's corrupt and undermining the rule of law, it's important that we nonetheless launder its reputation. And that is fucking nuts. Mm -hmm. That is an insane position for a Supreme Court justice to have. And it's something we've talked about when, you know, because every now and then people say, well, you know, what if you packed the court or whatever? Wouldn't that undermine the court's institutional position? And what we've said is I have no interest right. in maintaining the sort of institutional power of right. a right wing right. institution. Yeah. That's Zero right. interest. Doesn't right. fucking matter to me at all. I would rather see it collapse than see it continue on its current course. Right. And that whole discussion in Breyer's whole thing, failures right. to engage with like the profoundly anti-democratic makeup of the current court. And, and look, 
accepting that nine unelected people with life tenure are supposed to be insulated from political pressure. Yeah. Sure. That's like built into the structure for better or worse. Right. But that doesn't mean they're supposed to be completely divorced from democratic legitimacy altogether. Right. They're picked by the president who's like the only true national politician. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point of the president is somebody who's supposed to represent the entire country, not just the parochial interests of like a state or locality. Right. And yet, despite Republicans losing the popular vote in seven out of the last eight elections, that's like 30 years straight (laughs) at this point. Yeah. Nearly. And despite Democratic senators representing a majority of the public and having won more votes than their Republican counterparts for most or all of the same period, Six out of nine justices were appointed by Republican presidents. Yeah. It's insane. That's aggressively anti-democratic. Right. It has zero democratic legitimacy. And it's no surprise that this court is hostile to voting rights right. and democracy in general. They come from a minoritarian coalition. It's out of step with the public and it should have a legitimacy issue. That's a right. court that's this unrepresentative yeah. of what the country has been clearly and unequivocally voting for for three decades should have a legitimacy issue. Right. Like Democrats might not be blowing out the Republicans 60-40, but you know what? Winning 52-48 just about every election or most elections for 30 years, that's significant. Right. And that should be reflected. Right. And it's not. Right. Woo. Classic Michael. Mm-hmm. A plus, yeah. A plus, Michael. Uh-huh. We <laughs> Thank love you, it. Peter. We love it when Michael gets mad. <laughs> so this sort of like blinkered view of the court's role in America is intertwined with his belief that he should not step down, that the court's role is sort of separate from politics. So why would I make a political decision? Right. Yeah. <laughs> And so even though his speech is really about court reform, you can see all throughout the sort of underpinnings of his philosophy and why it is in his mind preventing him from stepping down right now. And I think one positive thing about this situation is that media coverage has been pretty critical of him for the most part. That said, there are quite a few morons (laughs) who have taken the position that Stephen Breyer should not retire. Always a few. Some of them are making the argument that it's like a personal decision in some way, which like Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to like address that too much because it's just fucking not. It's an incredibly powerful person in a role of public service. It's not a personal decision by any reasonable definition of what a personal decision should be. It is one guy's decision if like that's what you mean. (laughs) But like it's not. (laughs) People are like, this is none of your business. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) There is an argument, though, that I've seen that I think should be taken to some degree seriously. And it is the argument that calls for him to retire are counterproductive. That, you know, because he has this philosophy that the court is apolitical, that sort of trying to push him to retire is going to cause him to dig in his heels and get defensive. Now, I think this is a reasonable argument in the sense that it may be true. This is a practical reality that I think people who want to see him step down have to reckon with. Mm -hmm. But I think it's insane to believe that even if that is true, that it should halt the public discourse about this. Right. Absolutely. 
I think we should all be recognizing, too, that even if Stephen Breyer personally does not want to hear calls for him to retire, that that debate should still be happening in the public, that there's value in that discourse happening and in people being taught and understanding what's at stake when a Supreme Court justice decides to retire or decides to stay on the court. There's value in that happening, regardless of what Stephen Breyer thinks about it or what he does in reality reaction to his career and his retirement being a question that the public is discussing. Yeah. Active liberty, motherfucker. (laughs) We want democratic participation in your tenure. I think that's true. I mean, he's not necessarily the audience, right? Yeah. Yes, we want him to step down, but it's also about a public understanding of the stakes of the court. That's right. And what justices should be considering. Elena Kagan is part of the audience, right? right. Justice Sotomayor is part of the audience. Mm -hmm. And it might not be applicable to them right now, but it will be. Joe Biden is part of the audience. Yes. Yes. In terms of eventually picking a replacement and making sure it's not some fucking egomaniac like Clinton's two picks. Jesus Christ. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I find it hard to accept the idea that we should be somehow limiting public discourse so as to like do personality management with extremely right. powerful people. Yep. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you can probably make an argument that media criticism of Trump caused him to lash out at like blue states and blue politicians at times. Right. Does that mean that mm-hmm. we should have been nicer to Trump? Right. That journalists should have mm-hmm. refrained from criticism? Of course not. That's it's right. something that I think when you take to its extremes, it becomes clear that it's just not how media should operate. It's not how public commentary should operate. That's right. 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 It's a, it's key to being part of a free country is being able to discuss important issues of public concern, like right. who right. makes up the Supreme Court, right? Like that's foundational. Right. And so, look, I think this argument makes sense in the abstract, and I think it might accurately describe at least how Breyer imagines the inner workings of his head working. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think it's true, though, in, in the sense that, like, these calls started because there are certain things a Supreme Court justice can do. To like indicate that he's considering or she is considering retiring that then make their ways out into political circles and journalistic circles. And he wasn't doing those things. And it was a time period, March and April, when he should have been, when all these people who were scarred by, you know, Ginsburg's decision and living with like the uncertainty that was the fallout uh, of her decision for years. And then the very real you know, trauma of her dying just months before the office changed hands, people started freaking out and were like, why isn't he doing this? But that, I think, strongly suggests that he wasn't going to retire. Like prior to the discourse, prior to people pressuring him, he was like pretty much not going to retire. Like he was already planning this book and this whole little campaign, right? So there was no indication that he was going to retire. Now he's like, yeah, mom, I was going to clean my room, but you're nagging me, so I'm not going (laughs) to. Right, right. Yeah. Right. It's bullshit. It's, It's absolute bullshit. And we're here because he doesn't have the judgment to realize that what's maybe best for me is not what's best for the country. Right. Right. This should be like a foundational thing we expect out of a judge or justice is they could make a call like this. Yeah. A call where I really would like to stay on the bench, but it's not what's right for the country. Yeah. And he's incapable of it. Yeah. One thing I want to point out is you'll often see conservatives make these same arguments about the court and the law as Breyer. They'll say that the court is apolitical and neutral 
and that the practice of law is about coming to objective determinations about what the law is. But when they do it, it works to their advantage. Mm -hmm. They have control of the Supreme Court and of the lower courts. For them to claim that the judiciary is an apolitical institution, it helps cement the legitimacy of their power. Conservatives don't do this when the institutions aren't in their control, right? When the Warren court handed them losses on civil rights and a few years later they lost on Roe v. Wade, did they stand up and publicly defend the legitimacy of the court? (laughs) No. No. They called it judicial activism and launched a 50-year campaign to undermine the legitimacy of liberal judges that still defines the conservative legal academic position. Absolutely. When they lose elections, do they gracefully step aside <laughs> or do they, with increasing regularity, question the legitimacy of those elections? Yep. But in the eyes of centrists like Breyer, it's always on us to play nice, right? Yeah. Like Republicans can actively look to undermine every purportedly cherished institution we have, but there's always some so-called moderate ready to write a whole fucking book about the left's moral obligation to obey the rules. Yeah. It's Absolutely fucking infuriating to me. Yeah. And I think there's no better illustration of this than back in May when he was giving this talk and he has this quote, if you need Republican support, talk to them. My friend, what do you think? Get them talking and they'll eventually say something you agree with. This is the most senior liberal justice on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Bro. Bro, shut the fuck up. Maybe the fucking country club fucking Republicans you might have something in common with. 40% of the Republican base thinks Stephen Breyer's a pedophile. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. I was just about to say the couple of times in his entire fucking life that Antonin Scalia said something that I agreed with, Stephen Breyer joined the conservatives <laughs> in a majority to go against <laughs> him. <laughs> you fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah. So what's incredible about this statement? I mean, the statement's incredible on its terms, right? Like, just to hear it is to understand what a joke it is. But the timing, as he's saying this, literally as he's saying this on a live stream, over on Capitol Hill, the Republicans are filibustering the commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. <laughs> Gorgeous. As he's saying this, that's what's going on. That's how fucking disconnected this guy is. Like, absolutely not bearing witness to politics for 12 years <laughs> yeah. is the only way you could think that makes sense. Right. Yeah. That's it. I said head in the clouds, but it's more like head in the sand. Like this uh, yeah. dude just does not want to look at what's staring him in the face. Yeah. You know? Ugh. So before we wrap, I do want to address one item, which is the question of sort of what happens if he retires. Even if he did what was right and stepped down, he gets replaced by a young liberal justice. The court's still 6-3, right? Yeah. So people might say, well, does this really matter? And, you know, I think we would take the position that if he does, we still need institutional reform. Court reform should not be off the table. But we've talked about this before. It's true that the fifth justice is the most important one. And there are diminishing Mm -hmm. returns after that. But it's not true that there are no returns, that a seat on the court after that point is without value. The difference between a 6-3 court and a 7-2 court is the difference between the extreme fringe of the conservatives potentially getting five votes, right? You'll be in a position where you need Kavanaugh, Roberts, and one of the other, what would be five, right, (laughs) in order to get anywhere. 
That is yeah. catastrophic. Yeah. And I think the simplest way to put it is each seat that goes into conservative hands shifts the court one step to the right. It does. And the decisions get worse the farther they move right. That's right. The activists get more aggressive. They bring more aggressive cases. It's just emboldening for the entire movement. Things would be worse if it's 7-2. Right. We're talking about a court where Amy Coney Barrett is the moderate judge. Yeah. 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 That is absurd and wild. It's Kafka-esque, right? Yeah. And, you know, we've talked before about... What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it means you wake up and Amy Coney Barrett is a moderate mm-hmm. and you're a cockroach. So, <laughs> yeah. But we've also talked in the past about Breyer. Not only is he sort of apparently just thrilled and overjoyed to be in a 6-3 awful minority position, right? But he's even fumbling the bag on his position in that minority, right? We've talked about we need strong dissenters right now. We need a liberal dissent, even if it's going to be a minority position, right, that is speaking to generations to come, that is speaking to future lawyers, giving them ideas and issues and language to draw from in future cases that come before the court. And so Stephen Breyer isn't even taking seriously that role in the liberal minority right now. And that's where, even if it remains a liberal minority, a stronger writer and a more zealous jurist would be worlds more beneficial than fucking Stephen Breyer right now. Yeah, it's a great point. And look, obviously, the makeup of the Senate can change in a year. It could change sooner than that if someone dies. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen in 2024 and and all that. That being said, if Joe Biden can win re-election, there are a bunch of septuagenarian and octogenarian Republicans that need to hold on for seven more years. Right. Yeah. It might be a six three court, but only for, you know, a limited period of time. That's right. It could be a five four court again and even five four going the other way, depending on how things break. Right. Whether or not Justice Thomas gets vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. Brett Kavanaugh is one bad keg stand away. <laughs> So, I mean, this stuff matters, right? The right wing didn't take over the entire federal judiciary in two days, right? Right. Spent decades doing it. And obviously, we'd love to speed run this by packing the court, expanding the lower courts and all that. But even setting that stuff aside, you got to start somewhere, right? Exactly. And that needs to be right now. Like, that can't wait. All it takes is Newsom in California, losing a recall and 99-year-old or whatever, Diane Feinstein, who is actually, many people don't know this, that Diane Feinstein's been dead for three years. <laughs> and whatever eldritch power is like keeping her cadaver animated, it could run out at any time. Nobody really understands. That's, right. That's not true. As long as she says the right chant at night, she will wake up the next morning. <laughs> that is not confirmed. But that curse could expire. Yeah, exactly. That's true. No one knows its origins besides Diane. (laughs) At at any point in time. (laughs) We are on thin ice, though. Uh, It's a very, very narrow margin we're working with here. Yeah. I want to take a step back as we wrap up, because not only did Breyer refuse to step down, but he has sort of dug himself in and decided that the thing to do would be to scold the people who are trying to, you know, in his mind, politicize the court. and. The audacity of taking this 
crisis in American and global democracy and using it to tut-tut people who are rightfully alarmed. I mean, history is just full of these complacent fucking losers. Mm -hmm. Like, Breyer preaches what is essentially blind faith in the institution of the court as a virtue in and of itself. But what he does not address is that the reason faith in the institution is wavering is it is being co-opted by the illiberal forces of the right. Right. They are actively wresting control of the court and other political institutions away from the liberal majority in this country. What good does faith in institutions do when those institutions are being seized and weaponized by political actors? And Breyer just doesn't have an answer for that. Period. RBG was beloved by many. You know, she's a trailblazer in her field, both as a woman and an attorney generally. And even she received a good amount of criticism for her refusal not to retire after her death. And as time continues to pass and the realities of the impact of that refusal become clearer, I think the criticism will only increase. But either way, RBG's legacy was insulated by the fact that she was a cultural and political icon, right? Yes. Breyer does not have that luxury. If he fails to retire before he can be replaced by a Democrat, that failure will constitute his entire legacy. It's almost a guarantee. It doesn't matter how many speeches he gives or books he writes in defense of his choice. Someone needs to make a move, whether it be Stephen Breyer or the Grim Reaper. Uh, It's it's gotta be one of them. But either way... (laughs) The clock is ticking. <laughs> All right. Now, um, uh, imagine raindrops. I've seen rights you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Abortion rights upheld under the 14th Amendment. <laughs> I watched marriage become legal for gays. <laughs> All these rights will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. (laughs) Next week, Nestle v. Doe, another case from this term uh, about whether corporations can engage in just a little bit of child slavery (laughs) as long as they don't do it on American soil. And about the good pure-hearted lawyers who defend those corporations. That's right. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. And if you perhaps enjoyed our critique of Stephen Breyer, head on over to our merch store on 54pod.com and buy a Stephen Breyer Retire t-shirt or mug or or whatever you'd like. Yeah, stickers. You can get a tattoo that says (laughs) Stephen Breyer Retire. The PG-13 version that says Stephen Breyer, retire bitch. Listeners begged us for this merch, so put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons and original music by Rachel Ward. Our production manager is Persia Berlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. And our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Mm-hmm.